0: You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, an NBTA board-certified criminal law specialist, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, and renowned trial lawyer, Bill Powers.
1: Hello, thank you once again for listening into our podcast, Law Talk with Bill Powers. You can now listen in and download episodes on just about every type of device and format uh, via iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Libsyn. Please tell your friends and family about us. They can Google Law Talk with Bill Powers and use the app of their choice. If you'd like to be a guest on Law Talk or have a legal issue or suggested topic for discussion, please call us at 704-342-HELP. That number, if you didn't realize it, uh, the numbers, uh, keypad numbers on your phone have little letters above them, and that number is uh, 704-342-4357. This morning, our guest is the legendary Charlotte family law attorney, Tom Bush, Tom is not only a former law partner and friend, he's one of the best courtroom lawyers I know. His knowledge base on a wide range of legal topics and skill sets is unparalleled. The highest compliment I can give a lawyer is to refer to him or her as a lawyer's lawyer. Tom is that and more. Good morning, Tom.
2: Good morning. How are you, Bill?
1: I'm well, I'm well. Tom, thanks uh, very much for your gift of time this morning. It truly is an honor to have you as a guest, and I hope, given your extensive experience in a profession, you'll agree to be a regular guest on Law Talk. If you're new well, to the law or uh, even a more seasoned lawyer, if you truly know Tom, I think you'll agree Tom is an amazing font of uh, information. He's down-earth, straightforward, and a no-nonsense person. He also has some of the best sayings I've ever heard, and on, one, on more than one occasion, I, I've used myself at what I call a Tomism in court to Take a very complicated legal issue and make it crystal clear and easy to understand. And I have my little abbreviations for some of these. I call them throwing rocks at alligators, sand and shoe, cloud without rain, hat with no cattle, without wood, there's no fire, and um, talking of uh, forming a circular firing, firing squad or some of the Tom-isms. Tom is the senior attorney at the Tom Bush Law Group on East Boulevard in Charlotte, And while uh, he's handled an incredible number of different types of cases from personal injury matters to criminal defense, Tom is known wide and far as as one of the best family law attorneys in not just Charlotte, but North Carolina. Indeed, I can think of only maybe one or two other family law attorneys who also have actually tried a murder case to a jury. I met Tom Bush through his kids. I was one of their youth leaders at church. At the time, Tom was running for a seat in the United States Congress. I was a candidate for district court judge in Mecklenburg County. Tom, like me, grew up in South Florida. He's the former chair of the Mecklenburg County County Commission. And for the record, Tom endorsed my opponent who won the election, and uh, of course, okay. so did uh, Bill Deal. interestingly enough. Uh, they clearly knew something that I did not know at the time. And despite that, or maybe uh, because of that, a friendship and eventual law partnership developed. Tom has some amazing life stories, including hobnobbing with uh, President Ronald Reagan and Nancy. Uh, Tom's path towards law school and how he got admitted is nothing short of spectacular. It's one of the best uh, stories I've ever heard. His institutional memory of Charlotte, local politics, and the practice of law was something that I hope to dig into this morning. Uh, My friend, fellow fisherman, and Charlotte divorce lawyer Tom Bush, did I get it mostly right?
2: I think you did get it mostly right. um, You and I go back a long time, and it's... um, it's, we've shared a lot of things, the fishing, the flying airplanes, the uh, occasions when um, we didn't know whether to duck or pucker up in politics. We go back a long time.
1: Mm. Well, um, I'd like to jump into one shared passion right now. What's biting and what are they biting on? What, what's what? How's the fishing going?
2: Well, for everyone else, um, they're biting <laughs> on just about anything. For me, they're um, short of going down and spearing one of them, I don't know where the fish are right now.
1: Mm. Well, fishing, and all joking aside, is um, uh, one of your passions. And in fact, it I've always admired about you is your wide range of passions and energy. Uh, some would yeah. say, some say you're driven, uh, whether yeah. it's your, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, go ahead.
1: I'll just say, whether it's your faith or your family, fishing, flying airplanes in IMC conditions, working out, helping clients, you've always been what I call all in. So my, my first real question to you is, where does that come from? What drives you? Is it something natural or is that an intentional part of you?
2: You know, I don't know. I think um, the, you were talking about the fishing. Uh, I learned at a young age that God talks to little boys somehow when they're alone fishing. Um, we grew up on an island and uh, it was surrounded by what we call mangrove trees down in South Florida. And I can remember fishing and thinking about what I wanted to be when I grow up and the, the things that I've thought through, um, the the things I wanted to do, of course, I never wound up doing sometimes. I always thought I would be um, a member of the U.S. Senate. I never got quite that far. But um, for somebody who... who uh, Had to stay in high school a little bit extra because he couldn't pass algebra one for the third time and he couldn't get into college and then he couldn't get into law school Um, there was times in my lives when i thought um well i'm going to be on a roof um, in a hot summer sun putting a new roof on somebody's um, million dollar home but somehow um, through a couple of different interventions by divine providence um, i somehow got through law school
1: Right. And, and so you grew up in, in South Florida and, um, if Emory serves you, um, your dad was a pilot. Uh, I think he participated in maybe the Berlin airdrop at one point, uh, professional, uh, airline pilot. Uh, you have, um, a couple siblings and you're the, um, you're the oldest child. Is that right?
2: Yeah. I'm the oldest one. And you know, something you never hear of anymore. I remember my dad as a senior captain, um, ultimately with Pan American, told his his wife and my mom, Lyra, I made $32,000 this year, more money than we'll ever make in our life. And we got this house that we bought for $13,000. We'll and never get it paid off, but I want to educate all my boys through college. And he did it, three of us. I had two brothers that are twins. And, um, I can't believe what a great gift that was until I saw... The lawyers that work here
1: all of them with um, heavy student loans so i was very fortunate in a lot of ways right and that's even changed since i went to law school it was always a struggle obviously for and concern for students when they got loan debt coming out but now it's um to say astronomical i think is a bit of a misstatement or understatement um but you didn't have Lawyers in your family, or did it skip a generation, or were you the first attorney that you know of in your family that became an attorney?
2: Yeah, I didn't. Um, I didn't even have in my family anybody that graduated from college. My dad went to Emory University after the war, pharmacy school, um, but never completed it. Um, and so my dad was always proud of me, always bragging about me, and um, to others, to fellow pilots and others, and uh, he really, um, I thank my mother for my Christianity, and I thank my dad that I was able to do some of the things I did, because he always encouraged me. He was my best friend for a long time, and
1: I miss him. That's sweet. Uh, I personally think the um, best lawyers I know uh, are born to the profession, while there are um, things you can train people on, a, there, there are certain, I guess, innate character characteristics or personality types that make um, some lawyers better than others uh, in court yes, than others. I'm,
2: yes, and I, I think I agree with you, but you know, um, as you know, if you see a great pianist and you can look for one second and you can see where the piano and the pianist have become one, mm-hmm. um, they just are one, or you see a great pilot where the airplane and the pilot become one. There's a natural gift. So you're correct um, that really good trial lawyers have some natural gift. But I also know that no matter how brilliant you are as a lawyer, no matter how persuasive, no matter how good looking for that matter, Mm -hmm. no matter how much you hook up with a jury, Preparation trumps brilliance every time. When um, I learned a long time ago that a good landing starts 60 miles out, and if you want to prevail in the trial, then you start doing your homework months before your trial. You can't just pick up a file and walk into a case. Sure, I remember, and even preparation some, sometimes doesn't work. I'll tell you, your listeners that um, in my first trial, I had— it was a criminal trial. A man was accused of, I was defending him and he was accused of breaking into a home. And I had everything down on cards that I was going to say to the the jury. And when I got up to talk to the jury and give my opening statement, the first thing I said was, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you from the heart of my bottom for the opportunity <laughs> to talk to you Well, I, I think that's it so true. Sometimes even preparation doesn't do it all.
1: True. I think there's two sayings there that come true. You know, the first one is how do you get to Carnegie Hall and uh, um, practice. And the second issue, which is, um, I haven't really thought about it, so I appreciate you bringing it up, but uh, I I sometimes tell clients, um, you know, I can't file a motion to change the facts. Um, That's the truth. um, (laughs) And and we all think
2: um, lawyers have this fine line of ethical responsibility, not to exaggerate, not to hint at a truth um, that doesn't exist. And one of the most difficult things, those lawyers that have had to defend people charged with a crime um, are in that very difficult human desire of wanting to win, wanting to prevail. Um, For much of my life, and I still do it to some extent, it helps my skill if I look at the practice of trial law as great sport this is sport this is this is gamesmanship and usually that that might sound a little bit light but usually the client benefits from that so to the extent that that you're you're in the courtroom and that you want to win but at the same time you've got this ethical responsibility not to misrepresent something or to create a set of circumstances that never really existed and one of the things that that in these days i'm very much concerned about we brought some of this on ourselves but lawyers have never been looked at um in a sense of likable um beginning back with shakespeare's comment of kill all the lawyers and of course what he meant by that was if you want anarchy if you want to do away with order if you want to do away with with um, protecting people, then kill all the lawyers, is what he really said. But lawyers are not the most popular people around. And some of that we've done, I think we've done it to ourselves in some ways. Um, but one of the most important things I think now at my age is making sure that um, we set examples for the younger lawyers mm-hmm. not to cross over that imaginary line where you are creating in the mind of the trier of fact something that just plain and simply is not true.
1: Well, that's a great point. And, and I um, hadn't thought of that. It, it reminds me of something in the sport of golf, which I'm terrible at. Um, but I've always admired the golf being a, um, it's a comp, you know, it's a competitive sport, but it's also based on honor. And even if someone doesn't see the extra stroke or you accidentally hitting the ball you you scored against uh, yourself. And the definition of character, uh, in my mind, is doing the right thing when no one's watching. And I that's think right. I, and I think uh, that's very much what the rules of professional conduct require. Um, that's work, right. Work
2: and, I, and I think the other thing is some balance. And of course, um, I sort of condemn myself when I talk about this. There was a period of time um, where I got to know Dr. Billy Graham, and one of the comments he made was that he never wants a great pastor. Um, He wants a good one, but he doesn't want a great one. He says a great one, and just like a great lawyer, there's something missing in the great lawyer's life or the great pastor's life that somewhere, it might be his marriage, it might be addictions it might be um, some other um, loss in life that that loses or some other benefit in life that loses because he or she is a great lawyer or a great pastor um, there's some balance that's needed and if I had it to do over again I think i would. Um, what helps a lawyer more than me An understanding of music, an understanding of art, an understanding of history, an understanding of the humanities, an understanding of vocabulary and oratory and things of that nature that law school really doesn't teach you. But learning about the fine arts does, learning about history does. Um, There's a lot to be said for um, a lawyer's having a very liberal. Um, education the first four years
1: of post high school. I think it's a good point. I also um, think there's a, there's an aspect of this asking why lawyers are lawyers. Um, in fact, uh, rather than focus on specific issues on on this podcast um, or par- practice groups, we spend a lot of time talking about lawyering and, and, as someone who's dedicated the majority of their adult and professional life to the Advocates for Justice, where we teach lawyers and do continuing legal education, um, we are helping lawyers to be better at what they do on a technical proficiency side. Um, I think it's very important, and something NCAJ's been good about, of asking, you know, are, what, why are you a lawyer? Why did you go into this? Is, it, is there a service aspect of things? I myself call myself an accidental lawyer. I went to law school because I did not want to get a job. Um, I fell into the profession despite my best efforts otherwise. Um, Some people would say, if you're a fan of Thomas Aquinas and natural law, that you were born to the profession. Um, And I now know myself, I I know I was meant to be an attorney, despite how much I fought it. Um, Tell me about your path to becoming a lawyer. What motivated you?
2: Well, I think what motivated me more than anything
1: was
2: a burning desire for politics. I think that desire started maybe when I was um, 15, 16, 17 years old. I was uh, working at a very exclusive hotel on an island, Key Biscayne, and I had opportunity there to be the pool boy. And as the pool boy, I was putting out chase lounges for very wealthy people in this exclusive hotel, and they would throw me a dollar once in a while or that they'd be down there for a week they'd throw me a ten dollar bill when um when they were leaving and for me it just confirmed because i took care of people like uh, j edgar hoover who um, would be down at the hotel and i would talk to him for 30 minutes or so um every day and fascinating man probably the most vulgar man i've ever met in my life um but then i would I would see Mr. Nixon regularly um, down there, and then there were others like the Attorney General John um, Mitchell and his wacky wife um, Martha Mitchell. But taking care of these wealthy people, and not because I wanted wealth. I've never wanted wealth in my life, but seeing these people that held political power, and I thought to myself, um, I can do that. That person's no – no, no more capable than I am. And so I just, I, I, I decided that I was going to go to law school. Unfortunately, um, it took me a while to get out of high school and I couldn't get into college. I went through junior college, finally got into Florida state. And the first thing I did at Florida state was get involved in a fraternity and go crazy over a girl and flunked out back to the junior college what was then a, now a community college and then got back into Florida state again, by then I'd sort of learned, um, that if you're going to, if you're going to get yourself out of college and get a degree, you probably ought to let the turn take second place and discipline yourself a little bit about girls. As you know, Florida state was, used to be a girl's school. So
1: I did not know that.
2: But, yeah. And so then when about time I, Some years um, later, it became co-ed, but it always was predominantly girls. So you were like, a you're a boy, you're like a kid in a hobby shop. But the the point was, when I got out of Florida State, I could not get into law school. Everybody turned me down, um, simply because my grades weren't even good enough. And even Florida State um, turned me down. And one day I got a letter from the University of Tennessee that said, I'm sorry, um, we can't admit you now, but we might be able to admit you um, next year. And I was so troubled by it and I just wasn't gonna let it stop that I, uh, I could fly free, my dad being an airline pilot. And I got on an airplane. I, I read that letter about 11 o'clock in the morning. I got on an airplane um, at about 1.30 and flew to Knoxville, Tennessee um, commercially got to the law school there. And when I did, it was dark. And there was this one hunched over old man in there that asked if he could help me. There were just one or two lights on. I said, yeah, I just got this letter from, from the college of law. And I just want to, I guess I'd just like to ask you to reconsider and, and let me in now. Can you tell me who I can talk to? And he said, well, you can talk to me. I'm the dean of the law school. Hmm. And he let me in Um, and of course I came in in March and I didn't know the language. Everybody was ahead of me, but he gave me the chance. Um, And all I did was study. I studied, studied, studied. I let myself have Saturday night and did some pretty crazy stuff on Saturday nights um, where you have just been cooped up for six days. And uh, so uh, um, I, I made what would be the equivalent of C's the first semester. Um, but they say, you know, your first year, you're scared to death. Your second year, you know, your, you're worked to death. And your third year, you're bored to death. And with me, I just, I just kept studying and studying and studying because I didn't feel I had the natural gift. But um, I now have learned that the best trial lawyers are the ones who are not the A students in in law school, the A students go on to work for big corporate firms or they teach the trial lawyers, the ones who get right down there in the midst of it, who take on the huge burdens and responsibilities and a loss or a win has an incredible effect on, on people. Mm -hmm. I've tried um, a total of about 14 first degree murder cases where Maybe you don't have it, the facts have it, but you feel like you've got their life in your hands. Um, Or whether it's a big um, case where in the custody of children where these kids are gonna live the rest of their life or whether it's a woman who's been badly damaged from a medical malpractice case or whatever it might be, trial lawyers have a heavy responsibility. And that's probably why they have a lot of addictions. Um, lawyer, lawyers are right up there with, believe it or not dentists who have the most suicide rate, alcohol um, um, problems. So uh, I learned that even though I wasn't an a student in law school, the minute I got into the legal clinic where we were allowed to go over and represent um, people charged with misdemeanors under the um, mentoring, of a private lawyer or one of the legal clinics lawyers and uh, the first case I tried over there I couldn't believe it they actually do what I was taught that lawyer used the word objection and leading and uh, hearsay and the lawyer I was watching was older he was in his 60s and I thought oh my gosh this stuff actually works mm. these rules of civil procedure and these rules of evidence and here's this successful older lawyer in a little non-jury misdemeanor case using those that terminology and using that um, knowledge
1: well it's you know it's something i've known about you um you you've always been good with people and that maybe that's one of those skill sets we're talking about because i mean richard nixon was not known as being all that good one-on-one um, frankly, I think uh, Billy Graham even said that, that some of the best preachers are not. Uh, and I, from my own experience, found that to be true. They may be great orators, on one-on-one, they can be a bit um, stilted. Um, I remember you, and, and the politics aspect was interesting to me, too, because I, I think you said at one time you actually saw uh, John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev riding in the car together and getting out of the car together, which is funny considering the Missiles of October uh, incident. Yeah. Um, So maybe you've had the ability just to talk to people, I think, and and, and understand and relate with people, because I think that's very important with clients, especially with what uh, you do.
2: Yeah, you know, like I had said earlier, um, one of the things that politics taught me is once you take a position, um, you're going to create some trouble. Um, Having served in the Florida House of Representatives and served on the County Commission in, in Charlotte, there were times when I didn't know whether to duck or pucker up when I would walk into a cra- and, um, there were. but there was something I learned. If you are solid and confident in the position you take, and if you're prepared, even your enemies appear to be at peace with you. I think that they may not agree with you. They may not even want you to hold the office that you hold, but people are dying for leadership. One thing I learned, whether it's in the courtroom or it's in politics, people will follow a strong leader. And a strong leader isn't an autocrat or a benign dictator. A strong leader is one that is confident, that is comfortable in their own skin. And I think that that one of the great benefits that you can be as a lawyer to someone is reassuring in your confidence. When we have people come into the office, um, statistics show that women, the greatest fear they have in divorce proceedings are two things, financial insecurity and custody of their children. And when they come into the office and their husband's been the one that's earning all the money and he's a banker and she has done nothing but being a great Homemaker, a um, taking care of the children, taking care of the house, taking care and forfeiting her own skills, which she at one time had, she's petrified. And then the lawyer can give her some reassurance and let her know that things are going to work out good, to um, to tell her um, that the films of the people that sit in the chairs and if those chairs could talk they come out okay, and confidence is what does that. You, Bill, know, being a part of this group, that we meet every month to mentor lawyers and to refresh ourselves on what the law is. And it can be that tiny little case that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that your opposition hasn't looked at and didn't know existed, that win that case for that woman, or that it makes sure that she has her children or her financial security. So it's back to preparation. Preparation builds confidence. And preparation, like I said, uh, Trump's brilliance. So I think if I were writing a book for lawyers, the title of it would be "How to Be the Well Prepared Lawyer."
1: Well, yeah, that's a great title. And and family law. Uh, what makes it vexing is also what makes it um, interesting, is it's amazingly complex. Um, I don't think most people realize um, when people get legally married, that, uh, that, that means something more than just on a personal level, from a financial standpoint, when you're dealing with uh, child custody, uh, child support, post-separation support, equal distribution, uh, alimony um, and your, and uh, retirement accounts and real property, it really captures every aspect of, of law, of finance, depending on your individual circumstances. Um, it's really, 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 really complicated.
2: Uh, it um, is complicated. It, it is. And, you know, when you marry somebody, um, there are consequences, I think it was Solomon who who made the comment that in all situations guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life and once you give your heart to somebody else and once you are married and once you become one with that person and then like a dying coal in a a fire on the beach um, when that relationship slowly dies and that last coal goes out and all of a sudden your life changes and you never thought it would end that way um and no matter how much hurt no matter how much loss no matter how many tears it's not going to change the lawyer becomes real intimate with that man who is crushed or that woman who is crushed and you learn all the personalities and the things that people go through Um, some get very depressed and that depression um, becomes a preoccupation with self and we call it um, taking care of the lord's black trying to take care of the, um, the loving the unlovely is a pretty difficult task for the lawyer but the lawyer doesn't get to choose what facts he wants. Um, people come to us that are um, clearly both their mother and them love them, um, and they're very egotistic. Some of them are arrogant. Some of them are so full of tears and uncontrollable crying that we can't even talk to them until they get some help. So the human heart is really complex. It's not a tinker toy and family lawyers have to intervene in matters of the heart. So it's an interesting practice.
1: Well, there also can be a type of um, transference of anger and anxiety towards even your own attorney due to a frustration with the system. Um, You know, in criminal court, you have a right to remain silent and the state has the burden of proof. And sometimes even in criminal law, you have to tell clients, listen, this isn't like sixth grade math class where you know the other side's going to get wrapped on a knuckles for not necessarily doing something right. In family law, um, it can be very difficult to go through the process, especially if you're dealing with someone who wants to be unreasonable, someone who wants to drag out the process. How do you, when you're retaining a new client, um, I think it's very important in whatever area of law to manage expectations, to prepare the client, to, to talk about the cost of things. How do you go through that? Is It, it sounds like it's a little bit more gradual for you, but um, how do you do that?
2: Well, the first thing we do, and I don't know whether other family lawyers do it or not, we want to focus on reassuring them. We want to focus on letting them know that this is your first rodeo, but it's not our first rodeo. Mm -hmm. We want them to know that if they look at the films and if the chairs could talk, as I said earlier, that this is going to be okay. It's, it's going to work out and believe it or not, a year from now, you'll be a totally different person. So we approach it, establishing a relationship where the client, whether the client makes five or $600,000 a year, or whether the client um, is makes forty five thousand dollars a year as a starting police officer to reassure them that this is a storm in life, but that storms never last, as Doctor Hook says, and that sooner or later things are going to be okay again, and we're going to we're going to take your hand and walk you through it.
1: Well, and that's um, boy, that's easier said than done in my humble opinion, because um, clients, I think it's important for them to understand that going through that storm, there's a procedure, there's a process, there are um, interrogatories, there are depositions, there are requests for production of documents, there are uh, requests for admissions, there can be a mediation, and it can be a marathon. You just mentioned a year, a year from now. And a, a divorce may, you can't even file for a divorce unless you've been legally separated for um, you know, the requisite period of time. But um, when you're, and you handle some of the biggest cases, not just in Charlotte, but statewide, Tom. So, and you, you walk that high wire. How do you deal with that um, personally? Meaning, do you allow yourself to both be professional and caring with also having a degree of separation? Yeah.
2: I, I think the, the the way I deal with it, and, and part of it is, I've got a, a wonderful partner in life, um, my wife, who when I come home in the evenings, she lets me vent, and she lets me complain about the day, and um, I will vent and express an opinion, and she never gives me an opinion until I either ask for one, or she feels strong, to feel that I'm on course, you know, I hate it when God speaks through Chrissy, but sometimes he does. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's time you're going down the wrong path. So I have the ability to vent, which helps me. The other thing that helps me is I have just about every day, every day of my life, I exercise. Um, it's a rare time, maybe once every, maybe one or two days a month, that I don't exercise, and I think the exercise, whether it's getting on my bike and and riding or whether it's um, um, walking, there's something that lets my thoughts clean out my brain a little bit and lets me come down from the day. my office realizes that when you're in the courtroom and you're giving closing arguments or you're giving an opening statement and you've finished you're still grading yourself after you finish for maybe 45 minutes or an hour you're still thinking things through so they try to give me space Uh, when i come back in we try to block me off so i can either get up for something or i can come down for something but you know in the in the practice of law we do have a lot of um addictions we do have a lot of suicides we do have um lawyers and it's very difficult not to do this that get that take their clients burdens for them and make them into their burdens and that's where you cross that line because if you if you sympathize that's wonderful a little bit of empathy and the difference between sympathy and empathy is Sympathy is you see somebody hurting and, and you feel bad for them. You want to hurt, you want to help them. Empathy is where, okay, I've walked this road too. Um, I've been a part of what you've been a part. And that's where you can get into trouble by saying, I went through a divorce or I know what depression is. or And, and so then you've gotten overly intimate with your client. Which can cause you some problems. You tend to not be able to see where the facts are on the other side. You tend to to lose your perspective in the case, and what might be important to you, trying to help your client, the judge is not important about. Which is a whole nother issue. People should stay out of courtrooms if you want to know the truth in family law. Um, Absolutely, we have some brilliant judges, but we also have some judges where you. <clears throat> Probably could take a monkey and put a robe on the monkey, and it could do just as good a job. We've got such a very <laughs> judge. So you just—you don't know what you're getting in the courtroom. Um, a lot of our judges have never um, been out in the private practice of law. They've never had to earn a living on their own. They've always worked for the government as a district attorney or as a public defender or as an administrative person and they become judges at a very young age without a lot of experience and so they they, one of the greatest losses we have in this country this great judicial system that we have is the loss of the concept of precedent and law we've become courts of what we call equity where we do what's fair under the particular circumstances we no longer have the ability to say that precedent This is what, how things happen to make it, make it easier. um, Ethelie Bailey, one of the well-known lawyers of a different generation, decided that he was going to try a defense for a woman charged with first degree murder of PMS. And so he attempted to set up that she had such difficulty time during a certain period of time in the month that, and her husband was just constantly poking at her. That she killed him well that defense was stricken by the court as a matter of law because precedent said that that's not a defense but in the family court where we operate pretty much as a court of equity doing what's fair under a particular circumstance you can't predict an outcome because you have no precedent judges you can a lot of our judges we can quote to them the law we can give them the law we can show them the case that says for instance the law says that you can't order a house to be sold in a domestic situation prior to the the house being valued and appraised. But our judges don't care about that. And if they think the house should be sold before the trial, they just order it, which gets expensive because then you've got to try to appeal the judge. But they operate under this concept of fairness instead of law, which is troubling
1: to me. Yeah, that's, a, um, with all due respect, that's a note to self, uh, especially if the commentary about the bench, uh, the views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of law talk. Um, but, um, um
2: now, now I've always known that friendship paddle, paddle, kick, kick, <laughs> and, uh, look out for yourself.
1: Well, and I, I will say this, and I agree with you on one point, um, both from a practical standpoint but um, a financial standpoint. Um, I don't think in Mecklenburg County Family Law cases are generally held on the eighth floor. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to be taking. You You, you should be trying your best to stay out of court uh, for several different reasons. One, court's very expensive. Trials are very, very expensive. Just getting to the trial can be expensive. Secondary to that. Um, Despite your preparation, you don't always know how things um, are going to go. And third, there are times your uh, your finder of fact, your finder of law in North Carolina is a district court judge. It's not a jury. So I think sometimes clients are shocked to hear that they don't get a jury trial in family law cases. Um, but you, you you're not you don't know necessarily what you're going to get. And you're right. um,
2: um, we use the term um, lawyers use the term that a non-jury case. The judge is, is really the 13th juror. The judge not only determines the facts, like a jury normally would do, but the judge also determines guilt or innocence or who's getting custody of children or how much alimony is going to be paid. So North Carolina, there's a big debate that goes on with lawyers. Um, should we continue to elect judges? By electing judges, the idea is the population can get rid of bad judges by unelecting them every four years or every eight years, depending on the particular judge that they hold. The other side of it is, wait a minute, why don't we take like in the um, North Carolina Bar Association and the governor and the speaker of the house and the um, president of the Senate uh, appoint blue ribbon committees to interview judges and then make recommendations the governors, and we don't elect our judges, instead the governor appoints them. So that's a debate that's raged for years. Usually you find that in a state that allows their judges to be elected, they don't want to change that. In states that the judges aren't elected, the research seems to indicate that though the judges are more qualified, more scholarly, more capable in the law, But in family law, they have hidden biases that they don't even know about and how they feel, whether they had a fight with their wife before they came in, whether they are um, a family that grew up with alcohol problems and a husband has an alcohol problem and the judge was aware of what it did to his family or her family. Um, We have all have our we sort of determine our outlook on life from our previous experiences. And it can be dangerous when you're determining somebody else's life.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, and that's, you brought a really good point because I I personally think uh, the best judges out there are ones that you could not tell what their party affiliation would be. They may have a judicial philosophy, but they're not going to follow a a political uh, mindset in court. Um, And when I ran there was a party affiliation and for a while it was removed and now party affiliations back and um, I've gone back and forth um, on that that issue. I think it's fair to say um, we all want the best quality judge up there. I, I wish we would um, substantially increase the uh, pay because I think that would attract um, the, the best and the brightest for lack of a better term. So, yep. Uh, Tom, well, as expected, um, I've I've imposed upon you longer than I said I was going to, and I I have, gosh, I probably have a hundred more questions to ask you. So what I would probably do is um, maybe we just um, put a pin in it and um, leave these questions for another uh, podcast. I will ask you um, in in closing because uh, you brought up some really interesting points. Um, and, and one of which was the, the fact of that a lot of lawyers deal with these different issues and different problems. And uh, in fact, uh, in the studies I've read, that more than ha- I think it's more than half of lawyers who have 10, 15 more or more years of experience would not go back to law school. I, I think you would. But if you were not an attorney, um, what would you do? Because you have a lot of different interests. Would you be a, a pilot? would you be a preacher would you be a professional fisherman what would you do
2: you know that's a wonderful question Um, i certainly don't regret going to law school i tell younger lawyers when you obtain a license to practice law you just obtained a license to make a lot of money and if you can make a lot of money then you can provide for your family, you can do um, a lot of things. You can give generously, you know, biblically you and I know that too much is given, much is expected. So a law license, short of a medical license, um, is a wonderful thing to have. So I don't think I would regret the practice, uh, learning how to be a lawyer, becoming a lawyer and being involved in The law for so long. If money was no problem, I would have, my my heart's always been in politics. I would have wanted to be a member of the United States Senate. I would have wanted to be part of a president's cabinet. I would have wanted to be chasing that dream to the highest level. I did chase it. I did have some success. I also um, had some losses. That was good for me, to do that. Um, I think if, if I could do it now, I would fly single-engine airplanes for Samaritan's Purse or for some other organization. There's a group of pilots that that fly um, these little socks to for dogs that go into um, earthquake um, locations and, and other places to find and to rescue people that are um, under a lot of um, cement from bridges and, and their paws get raw. And so these group of pilots, whenever there's a disaster anywhere, they fill up the airplane with these little socks to put on the dogs so that when they're looking for, um, when they're trying to help out, whether it's local police or whether it's specialized, um, people with specialized um, training with their dogs, and that would just be great fun. You know, if, you, if somebody doesn't have the money to get educated, if they, if they can't get educated, I think the next best thing is travel. Um, travel is a wonderful education. I see it from commercial airline pilots and flight attendants that I know that some of them never were able to go to college that they were able to get on as flight attendants, or they were able to work their way up and become pilots. The military, wonderful way to get educated. So, you know, we all don't have to go to law school. You know, a lot of us can become successful, and a lot of us can become knowledgeable
1: through other ways. Sure, and I, I want to clarify a point, because I think what you are trying to express, maybe to law students or people interested in going to law, is that there is a potential to make a a good living. But also there is a tremendous responsibility associated with that. And um, I will just add, and Tom, I'll let you disagree with me if you want, uh, generationally things have changed substantially where you're Tom Bush, you're known in in an entire state and cases, uh, big cases come to you regularly based on a lot of years of work and training younger lawyers are coming out with a quarter million dollars or more of debt. You didn't have that. And even if um, you do well, which there's a potential, but there's also potential of not doing well, um, you, can, you can make a fair amount of money to pay back that debt and not be in a job or an area of law that you enjoy. Uh, I, I worry about younger lawyers taking cases, taking jobs predicated on the for lack of a better word, a, a mortgage on a very, very expensive education versus something that they're passionate about. Do you, do you agree with me on that?
2: Excellent point. Um, I I think that you've hit a bullseye um, on that one, that, that you forfeit a lot to become a lawyer. And what the public doesn't know is we undergo some pretty strong scrutiny. Number one, we have to be fingerprinted. Number two, we have an all day exam on nothing but lawyer along with another um, with a total of three days of test before we become a member of any bar in the country Um, we are ruled daily by ethical um, considerations that the average human being is not under if people knew what we have to do and live every day with is this a conflict of interest is this um, can I go into business with this client can I take this fee um, as taking a lot that they've got in the mountains they can't afford me but they want to give me a lot they say that's worth $50,000 up in up in the Appalachian mountains somewhere can I do that and we are so um, elevated in our ethics that we're not even able to do something if it gives a perception of a conflict, regardless of whether it's a conflict or not. So the public, on the one hand, ought to be reassured that nobody is monitored, looked at, regulated, and subject to discipline than lawyers. And the North Carolina State Bar and the Florida Bar and other bars, they don't mess around. You can find yourself if you touch a trust account then you shouldn't, you can find yourself with anywhere from being disbarred for five years to a suspension. Um, we can't have any type of sexual relationship with a client. Um, we can't have any business relationship with a client um, without certain safeguards. And even those safeguards are frowned on to, um, to get involved with the client.
1: So... And to my young we're lawyers,
2: really, uh, we're really under a lot of uh,
1: scrutiny. To my younger lawyers and to law students, I'd also say it's not as crystal clear as you think. It's very, very, very complicated. You can go in with the best intentions, um, and and make a mistake, and it, yep. um, and it's that's that's true whether from an ethical standpoint or a professional standpoint, where you can go to every CLE you can do. You know, you're only required to do 12 a year. You can do 100 CLE hours a year. You can teach CLEs, and well, we're human, and it's possible to make a mistake. And that's, that's maybe we talk, a, maybe we, that's where we pick up the next time we do this time. So, um, once again, I do want to thank uh, everybody uh, for listening to um, Law Talk. Um, I would invite you to please tell your friends and family um, about it, and uh, we'd love to uh, make it easy as possible for them to download episodes and listen and tom uh, thank you so much for your time
2: you're welcome i enjoyed it thank you bill
0: you've been listening to law talk with bill powers your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions on your time ready to discuss your matter now call 704-342-HELP for your free and totally confidential consultation. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented on this podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decisions. Thanks for listening.